but we also want to end it in his name as well. We love you. It's his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 14. This is Thanksgiving Sunday. If you have your bulletins handy, you'll be able to follow along. There's some places to take notes. There's also a fourth point supplement that's available at the back and you'll be able to pick one up. Uh, we want to encourage people not just to have this be uh, a, a, a momentary event, but it would be something that continues on. When you eat the Word of God, we want it to be digested and it want, we want the nourishment to get into you. Now, if you look at the word cloud that we always put up each week, it's something we are thankful for. Uh, I'm hoping it's something you're thankful for. But since we're an unaffiliated and reformed church, uh, one of the things I always want to keep in front of you is that we're not ashamed of the gospel. It, in fact, it's smack center, if I think correctly. The word gospel is right there, and uh, the word Bible is very, very significant. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who gave us the Bible. And that's why we're Bible-believing, because it is the revelation from God. It is to show us how we can glorify and enjoy Him. It is the only rule to direct us in, in any state. Or I mean, yesterday, I had a memorial service here, and I told the folks, it's the only place that you'll find the words of eternal life. You can't find it anywhere else. God has revealed it because God alone is the one who knows these things. So we are Bible-believing, gospel-driven, and we cherish the idea of gathering to meet with God. We believe God is real, and so when you come to church, you come to meet with Him. You come to worship, and we pray that you'll be changed. You'll be changed because we have doctrines of grace, we have the, uh, the friendly community, uh, but we also have the opportunity to just make sure that that the people of God are able to gather and not forsake the assembling of themselves together. We're New Covenant Church. So I'm glad you're here. If you'll open your Bible, since we're a Bible-believing church, I want us to go to the book of Romans. Our text today is following in a series, uh, Romans in Reverse. Instead of starting in chapter 1, we've started in chapter 16, and I've been backing it up. Uh, today we're in chapter 14, so we're not too far from the back, and you'll hear how some of that still fits together. My prayer is, is that you're studying the whole book of Romans, and you'll be able to see how the puzzle pieces fit together. But right now, let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's infa infallible inspired word as it was given in the originals. I'm going to be looking at verses 5 through 12 of chapter uh, chapter 14. This is God's word. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and he lives again, or he lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So the question in verse 10 is asked, uh, there's two questions. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And this is where he quotes Isaiah. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is God's inerrant inspired word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
These words I've been repeating over the last few weeks. I pray that they'll resonate today, even as we're called to give thanks. I pray that we might not become uh, uh, glossed over, but I pray that we might be gripped by this grace. I pray that you might speak to us. I pray that we might not be distracted by other things, and may we leave this place changed, not because we're angrier, but because we are changed to be more like Christ, because we spend time with our Savior. We thank you for the word of God that's been given to us, that we might be able to not only hear it, but that we might be led by it. For you are our shepherd. Lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, today is Thanksgiving Sunday. Some folks want to get a little confused and say, Pastor, well, Thanksgiving is coming up on Thursday. Well, Thanksgiving uh, is usually the culmination when you have your meal at your house. Uh, but I always like to drive our attention and teach you so that when you do have that opportunity to meet, that you will not forsake the opportunity before you. In fact, I was just looking at Capital Ministry produced a, a Bible study that is, uh, I think I have it right here. I saw it printed out, and uh, it, it says that uh, when you meet with your family, leading Thanksgiving devotions with your family. Leading Thanksgiving devotions with your family. Of course, there's lots of food on the table in the picture, but uh, what does your Thanksgiving look like? Uh, the question I begin today's sermon with is an application of the text we just read. Should, should we esteem this one day the fourth Thursday of November better than other days. Now remember the text that we just read, verse 5 of Romans 14, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. So here we are, we've faced with a real-life application of this text. We have this, this holiday called Thanksgiving. Should it just be like every other day, or should it be special? Should you esteem it better or not? What's the Christian thing to do? I don't know if anybody's ever asked you that question. But uh, since our text is in front of us, and it says that some people do and some people don't, uh, I've been one that's been uh, crying out that, uh, that Thanksgiving has been a day that our culture is dismissive of. Even as in Sunday school, when we wrapped up the prayer vigil, I was talking about the fact that uh, if you go to most stores, most of the department stores, when Halloween is over and the candy is sold, guess what? Christmas comes on. All the lights there. And I mean, I even have some great neighbors who have already skipped Thanksgiving. At least by their decorations. They may not skip it by the big meal. In fact, some people in some of the newspapers uh, in, in the food section, they call it Turkey Day. They don't even call it Thanksgiving Day. I guess they want to sell more turkeys. Is it better? Is it to be honored? I, I was laughing when they, uh, not, not laughing, I was kind of sad that I, I was a little jealous, I should be more honest, that when the turkey that was pardoned uh, in the White House got to stay in that five-star hotel, I was like, my goodness, even the turkeys get it better than we do. Although the theory is that the one turkey is pardoned, the other one doesn't get to carry on. Now, all of this is to say, so What? If we honor one day better than another day because we have different reasons or we have different traditions or we have different patterns, you're missing the point. And that's why our text goes on to explain that it needs to be in the Lord. 
So let me finish up that verse. If you, if you look at verse 5, how it says, One person esteems a day better than another. Another person esteems all days alike. Almost like they don't get uh, all excited about birthdays or holidays or anything. It's just another day of life. Verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. Did you notice that key word? In honor to the Lord. It was missing in verse 5. Now, if you look, carry on, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Did you notice, in honor of the Lord? If you go a little further, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. And he gives thanks to God. And uh, that's kind of interesting, that a big part of what I want to be able to focus on during this Thanksgiving service is the fact that even in the book of Romans, there is a call to give thanks. There is a pattern of giving thanks. And if you look at verse 6, you can see that the term giving thanks is there twice. It's there twice. Now, I'm going to be focusing today with our main points in the sermon text about Thanksgiving. The first point is that we're going to be looking at observations regarding the giving of thanks. Secondly, we're going to look at the explanations regarding those who gave thanks. And third, I want to be able to have some applications for believers like us to give thanks. Uh, so when you follow along, you'll be able to see it flow right out of these verses. But verse 6 was the one that just captured my attention. How appropriate on Thanksgiving Sunday to talk about giving thanks. Normally, you're going to be in the book of Romans, you're going to be stuck whatever Paul is talking about from the doctrines of justification, the doctrines of sanctification, the doctrines of election, all of these things you can march through. But in chapter 14, we get to see, like I said, we get to see two different individuals or two different groupings that give thanks to God. So, let's do that. Let's understand this a little bit more from the observations. We're going to examine it a little bit more closely. Now, the first point I want to draw your point to is that it's the percentage of people that give thanks. The percentage. Now, in this particular text, if you're following along in verse 6, you can see the one, the one does this, uh, they observe a day, and then another one eats, and another one uh, doesn't eat. They abstain. So when I'm trying to explain it to folks, it kind of comes down like this. One observes a special day. One observes every day as being the same. One eats of the food and thinks it's good, and another one doesn't eat of that food because they have other reasons. That's really where you got. But the irony is all of these people are able to give thanks. What's the percentage of that? If the people who eat and the people who don't eat the people who observe and the people who don't observe, if everybody's able to give thanks, that's 100%. It's kind of neat. The idea that people can give thanks. Now, I'm going to get into this a little bit more, but I remember the story that Jesus taught when he healed 10 people and how many people came back to say thank you. One out of 10, which is 10%. So you can clearly see that there is a, an interesting application going on by Paul in the book of Romans. And this makes sense when you realize who Paul is writing to. If you turn over to chapter 1, you can see very quickly Romans chapter 1. Uh, the, the, the identification of the believers is right there. I'd like to just highlight it for you. Uh, when Paul wrote this, Paul, this is verse 1 of 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart by the gospel, which God promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus, who is, descended, who is a descendant of David, according to the physical flesh, 
according to lineage and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This Jesus Christ, our Lord, who through whom we have received grace and even this calling to be an apostle to bring about an obedience of faith to the Gentiles for his name's sake, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To you that are in Rome, who are loved and called, uh, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, when you think about this, it's clear that he's writing to, to believers. He's writing to the people that are in Rome that don't really have shepherds yet. They don't really have the organized church. They haven't had the visit from any of the apostles or missionaries. And the apostle Paul is saying, wow, Jesus grabbed my attention. You can read about that in Acts 9. And, and he's sending me out to visit with you guys. Wow, this Jesus stuff is, is so awesome. Because in verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. He says, I, I'm not ashamed of it at all. But I am here to give it to you. Now, when Paul is writing this in Romans, uh, the book of Romans in chapter 14, where we are, one of the observations is he's expecting 100% participation in Thanksgiving. Because they're believers. You got to digest that for a moment. So if we're looking around the room, if everybody here is a believer, how many of you truly should be giving thanks? All of us. Now, the problem is, it it's, doesn't typically happen. People are so distracted and, and doing other things that they, they're not focused on returning thanks as that one intended. They end up getting caught up with the busyness of life. The Apostle Paul says, in light of all this doctrine, in, in light of this great salvation, God's people ought to be able to give thanks, uh, even when there is, secondly, some differences. So one observation is that there should be a full participation, but secondly, there's some inconsistency in this text. Even though everybody can give thanks, it is really different the way that he expresses it. He says, there's some people over here doing this and some people over here doing this. Some people have a diet like this, and some people absolutely have a different diet than that. And, and it's like, but they all can give thanks to God. That's one of the observations that, that amazed me. Now, all of these differences, according to the text, are called opinions. So if you have chapter 14, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but don't quarrel over opinions. When you start looking at these observations, and we touched on this last week, the root word for opinions, do you know what it is? The word for, uh, for opinions has to do with words. The root word is logos. Okay, so he says it's the way you talk. And the word dia is through it. So it's like a dia logos, uh, which, which is basically that's the opinion. It's the way you think through things, the way you explain it with your own words. He says that's what's going on right now is that a lot of people are trying to explain things in their own words. They're coming up with their own conclusions. And then the word that describes before that at the end of verse 1, he says they quarrel over opinions. Now, what does it mean to quarrel? Have any of you got any experience with quarreling? Sounds like you all are pretty well uh, skilled in that area. Uh, do you know what the root word of quarrel is? It is the exact same root that is often translated as judge, critique, discern. 
When you're quarreling, it means that you're hearing these opinions and you're not liking the opinions. And so you make a judgment on those opinions. And as a result, when you have lots of different people that have thought through it and came to their own conclusions, and then you have others who have thought that they're crazy, they're quacks, they're loons, they're weird. You quarrel over these opinions. This is why it's part of the breakdown of the family unit in our culture in the 2020s is that people are even afraid to talk about anything because it'll lead to quarreling, it'll lead to judging, and as a result, most people self-cancel. You don't even need Facebook with Zuckerberg to do it for you because you just don't bring it up. Nobody wants to talk about things that are controversial. You know... Isn't it the phrase, I mean, even growing up, my, my dad was a preacher, and we would go up to Canada, and of course, we were the Americans, and they were the Canadians, and guess what? They thought that they were better than us, and of course, we thought that we had it better than them. Uh, when the COVID, right now, I can tell you, we have a lot more freedom than they do up there right now. Uh, so, so I think we win the argument. We don't have to quarrel about it anymore. But right now, we do have a little bit of a quarrel. My mom is turning 90, and mom has a twin sister that's turning 90. Imagine that. They're both turning 90. January 7th. And we're trying to find a way that the two gals can get together because that's a big milestone. But there's this border, and there's all this quarreling about what we can do and what we can't do, and who can travel and who can't travel. And you're going to get sick, and you won't get a sick. It's all, oh boy. Don't you love opinions? The dialogos. Everybody's talked it through in their own head. The apostle says that you need to be careful here, chapter 14, verse 1, and welcome the people rather than getting into these judgments over opinions. And then he says that these opinions, they are manifest with these illustrations. The one has talked it through in their own mind that all days that are special are special. I grew up in a family... Well, I think uh, mom and dad had so many kids, they just didn't make birthdays very special. I think it was to cover the fact that they had so many kids, maybe that would save them from having to buy too many presents. Uh, there was uh, eight of us. So I grew up where birthdays were not the biggest things. And yet I married into a family where birthdays were very special. And let me tell you, if you missed a birthday, what would happen? Something not good. Now, when we quarrel over these opinions, the fact is, is that birthdays are to be special. But it is interesting that every day is special, too, in the sense that you can breathe again. Because when you go to a funeral, you realize that every day of life is precious. And that's one of the reasons why we're pro-life and don't want to see the little lives of the babies terminated, even inside the womb. Every day of life is precious. Now, when you look at this particular text, and I made a, a couple of applications already, the quarreling over these opinions are because people are different, and labels are actually being applied. I was observing that uh, some group was called weak, uh, others were called strong. Now, I don't know about you, but which would you prefer to be in, the strong group or the weak group? Now, maybe if we're talking about odor, you'd probably be in the weak group rather than strong. But most of the time, we like to be with the group that seems to be conquering, the ones who can, who can triumph. Okay, but if you look at the text, as for the one who is weak in faith, <laughs> you guys need to be nice to him, welcome that person, uh, even though they've got an opinion that's different than yours. Now, in chapter 15, that's when he gives to the other group. He said, we who are strong 
have an obligation. Now, did you notice there's the weak and the strong? And where does Paul identify with? He's with we, the strong. Now, <laughs> I'm kind of making a little bit of humor out of this, but it's interesting that the labels actually fit. Is everybody the same? Is everybody equally spiritual? Is everybody discerning as they should? And the answer is no. And the fact is, is even as a parent, I can tell you, I've got four kids. They're all growing. They're all making progress. They're all making that journey. And one of the reasons why it's such a beautiful thing to take them from that baby stage all the way up to, to sending them out, you know, you get to work with them and just get them to grow with their math skills, their English skills, their social skills, and their biblical knowledge skills. Usually when they're starting out, we don't talk about the doctrines of election and predestination and free will. But normally when they get a little older, I definitely want to tackle those topics. Why? Because there is from weakness to strength. Now, does that make somebody in the weak category a bad person? None of you want to judge, do you? You've been listening to the text quite a bit. Uh, but the text says that there are those, the observation is that there are labels on people and we need to take notice of that. Now, there is also this challenge there not to condemn. This is kind of powerful. When you look at our whole text, I want to read it for you one more time as I'm doing some observations here, uh, where it says clearly that the one person who esteems one day better than another, the other esteems all days alike. You kind of get the idea. This is where you have the opinions from chapter 1, verse 2, or chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, the opinions there are some people choose this. This is their opinion, that they want to honor all the days the same, and the other people want to honor days special. Then there's another group of people that deal with food. They want to uh, watch what they eat. They want to make sure that they don't uh, overeat the carbs. They want to eat the vegetables. In fact, that's what it says in chapter 14, verse 2. The one person believes he can eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. I know that's a little tough that he makes all the vegetarians look weak, but maybe it's because they didn't eat enough protein. There's not much laughter on that one. What I want to be able to tell you is that all of these opinions are there. And the Apostle Paul is giving them a challenge. And I wanted you to observe the fact that these labels are real, but the judgments don't have to follow like we might have expected. And that's why when you go a little further, for none of us lives to ourself. That's verse 7. And that is why in verse 10, why should you keep passing judgment on your brothers? And why do you keep despising your brothers? Now, this term brother has to deal with the, uh, it's a generic, it's men and women. So it's people. It's guys and girls. He says, why do you pass judgment on the people that are around you? Now, when he's talking about brother here, he's actually talking about church people, fellow believers. And so the issue that's coming up now is that everybody's supposed to be thankful, 100% participation, but we have all these different opinions that are around. A lot of us have them, and we've thought it through the words of our mind. They all come together, and we've come to these conclusions. Wow. The observation of this stirs me up, and it gets me wondering, what next? But there are a couple of observations about God in this, protect, in, in this particular text, too. In verses 1 through 5, you can see that God is not complacent. God doesn't say, oh, well, who cares? God actually authorized the apostle to start writing about this and reveal what's the mind of God. 
Okay, so God is not complacent. Secondly, God is, is not uninvolved. Or to, to use the double negatives and take them away, God is engaged. Okay, you can't say that God is not involved. He has set an example in verse 3b where he ends up saying, let no one who, who eats despise uh, or who abstains, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has done what? See it up there? God has welcomed him. See, God's already set us an example. God has already said, hey, I've already said they're okay. It's pretty neat. And that's why I want to be able to say that God not only is not complacent and he's not uninvolved, but God has spoken. God is speaking. He has delegated the approval process to the master. In verse 4, you can see that. Uh, verse 4, for who are you to pass judgment on your servant? It is before that young person and his master that he will stand or fall, and he will either be upheld or put down. But in this particular case, he says, and he will be upheld, for the Lord, capital L, is able to make him to stand. And so you have God speaking, saying, I have declared him righteous. I have declared him as one of mine. Do you see this? Now, God is actually involved, and this is part of the observation before we make our own applications. And uh, the, 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 the key thought in, in all of this is, wow, God cares about this stuff. I want you to observe that. God cares about the unity in the community. That's why the Apostle Paul, in this particular chapter, remember we're starting from Romans going backwards, at the end of chapter 15, when he finishes up his whole uh, application stuff, he ends up saying in verse 31... In verse 33, may the God of peace be with all of you in Rome. If you remember how I've been explaining it to us, the, uh, the whole book, chapter 16, is basically saying at the end, there's a doxology. Wow, God is great. His salvation is great. To him be the glory. He backs up and he tells us about the 30 some odd people that are in Rome. And he says, man, some of you in Rome, you're doing great. And then he says, some of us are coming to meet you in Rome. He gives a little bit of a contrast. And he says, but be careful, there's some wolves in sheep's clothing. That's all in chapter 16. It's kind of like the greetings and the talk. But in chapter 15, he ends up with that whole petition. Please be at peace. The reason he's talking about the call for peace is because many people don't live at peace. But if you turn back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, uh, those of you that haven't memorized, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, already the doctrine says we have peace, but in chapter 15, verse 33, we don't feel like we have peace. What's the difference? Is God wrong? No, the reason why you're missing who do you have peace with in chapter 5, verse 1, you have peace with God. You know, the one who made you? We talked about it last week. The one, the creator and the sustainer. You have peace with him. There is therefore no condemnation if you're in Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1. But in chapter 5, verse 1, he says you have peace with, that, with God. In chapter 15, he says, but I want you to have peace with all of you guys that are in the body of Christ. Why does he petition and plea? It's because it's not so easy to be at peace with each other, even if we're at peace with God. And that's why chapters 14 and 15 really emphasize the mess that was in the church, in the community. 
People weren't in harmony. Chapter 15, verse 5. If you, if you go back and are familiar with that particular text, I love the word harmony that is in there. He says, I wish you guys had this harmony. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with each other in accordance with being a Christian, with being connected to Christ. Do you see this? Wouldn't this be nice if this was applied to every marriage? How many divorces would there be? Husbands and wives in harmony? How many young people would want to get married if they saw how wonderful marriage is because of the harmony? Instead, we have so many divorces, we have so many people not even getting married anymore. Makes it really tough. But the apostle is telling us he wishes that everybody would be at peace with each other, that they could live in harmony because they aren't living in harmony. And that's part of the, as I said, the explanation that we're going to get. In verses, uh, if, you, if you turn to our text now, I want to be able to take us to the second point, uh, the explanations. We see that everything has been observed there, but the explanations for why it is the way it is, each of us need to be fully convinced in our own minds, verse 5b, and then in verse 6, the one who observes this day should do it and be thankful to God, and the one who eats a certain way should do it and honor the Lord and give thanks to God. It's pretty interesting that when you get, when you fulfill this understanding, you're going to see there's three explanations in this text. And I'll go over them quickly. The first one is that you're supposed to have been convinced in your own mind. So chapter 14, verse 5. At the end, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, I raised this question in, in the fourth point. Have you ever been fully convinced about anything? I like that boldness you have. I don't like the, the ambiguity that the rest of you have. Are you right or are you wrong? Are you sure? Usually when you get into a hot argument, you end up taking a side, and whether you're really convinced or not, you end up acting like you are. Does that make you right just because you act like you're fully convinced? I found this very, very interesting that, that the, one, the one explanation is that the Apostle Paul says you can't give thanksgiving if you're not fully convinced. You can't be one of those thankful people if you're, a, if you're waffling, if you're not sure. And like right now in our culture, my goodness, there's a lot of confusion going on and therefore a lot of people are unsure. Should you wear a mask or should you not wear a mask? Should you get the shot? Should you not get the shot? Should you come to church if you have a cough? Should you come to church if you have a sneeze? You know, obviously, if you have a sneeze, everybody's going to say, God bless you. So maybe that's a good reason, right? Now, just what I'm trying to say is that confusion abounds. Now, I want you to be able to know that the scripture says that the only way you're going to be able to honor the Lord and to give thanks to God is if you are fully convinced in your mind. Now, the Greek word there is your noose. It's not a N-O-O-S-E, but it's talking about inside of you. It's inside of your head. It's, it's, your, uh, it's your subconscious Gaining an understanding. It's the way you commune with God. It's who you are. He says you need to be fully convinced. And this is where a lot of us are not there. So let me back it up or rewind it and explain it to you a little bit. So we have some people being convinced about holidays versus regular days. And we have some people concerned about diet and about uh, another kind of diet. Okay? Now, the people who are going to be able to thank God are the ones who are so convinced that they do it 
because they're honoring God and being faithful. They're, they're not, they, they, they get it. They said, oh, God is honored if I keep every day the same. Or God is honored if I keep these days special. Or God is honored if I eat this particular diet with vegetables. Or God is honored if I just feed my body what it needs. Do you see what I'm trying to say? There is a convincing uh, spirit that they have. People are, are not whiffle, they're not waffling. They, they are so convinced that this is what God is calling them to do. When you have that, that sense that God is giving you calling, it should not just be built on your emotions. When you're convinced in your spirit, there should be scriptural support for it. You shouldn't just be able to say, well, I just had this special revelation in a dream last night after I ate a, a gallon of ice cream that this is what God wants me to do. Be careful when you throw around how the spirit does this and the spirit does this, that we really do need to have the foundation of the word of God. You're not free just to do whatever you want. You're totally free in Christ. We need to listen to him. And follow his guidance. And for those of you that think that having all days be alike, if you can find that in scripture, great. Maybe my parents had that. And for those of you that have special days like Christmas and Thanksgiving and even Halloween. I'm not going to say all of those are great. But you can. You can be thoroughly convinced by the, the Spirit of God working in you that some days are extra special days. This is the day when we remember what God did in bringing you into this world. This was the day that you breathed your first breath and you cried that first little cry that made your parents cry. Not because they were sick of your crying, but because they were thrilled you're here. When you go through, there's those days of graduation. And, and like for me and Tracy today, there was the day of joy of even watching our little boy sitting behind the piano again special day you have to be convinced in your spirit that this is pleasing to God and if that is the case then that's why you have grace with one another and this is part of the text that he's explaining and as far as the explanation you need to, in your mind you need to be thoroughly convinced and therefore you're not going to be waffling here there and everywhere and let me tell you right now when you are waffling over different topics guess what that's a problem You've come to the fork in the road and you're stalled. You don't know which way to take. It's not great, as my dad used to teach, to stay in that stalled position. You need to move forward, but you need to do what God's calling you to do. And those of you that are concerned, what is God calling me to do? Get some spiritual counsel. Set up an appointment, meet with the pastor, meet with some spiritual leaders and study the word of God and God will make your path clear. How do I know that? Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways talk to God. God will make your path clear. Verse 6, Proverbs 3. There may be a way that seems right to you leaning on your own understanding, Proverbs 14, 12, but it'll lead to more devastation, more frustration. It'll lead to death. It'll lead to everybody being angry at each other which is what's going on in our culture today when there's an abandonment of truth and everybody's left to do what's right in their own eyes. Now, I told you that there is the, the, uh, the issue, the explanation about having your mind fully, fully confirmed. Now, secondly, from the text in verse 6, you can find that it's not just that you're convinced in your head that you're right, that this is what God wants, but it's also that you practice it. These people that had a diet that said, I'm not going to eat anything but vegetables... What happens if tomorrow they got up and they had some bacon and egg breakfast? 
what would you look at them and say? I can't believe it. She says she's a vegan and she ate a bacon and egg breakfast. What have we just done? We've just judged her. What did we judge her about? Was it about the food? No. We judged her because what she said that she was doing, she didn't do. It had nothing to do with the food. It was when we become liars because we don't even practice what we preach. Preachers have said a lot. If you listen to the videos, I have to be real careful because I preach a lot. But what do you preach? What comes out of your mouth? What are the things you're committed to? What are you convinced by God that this is what you're going to do? Do you tithe? Do you attend church regularly? Do you share the gospel? Do you watch things you shouldn't be watching? All these things. Have you made commitments and vows? Do you know what the mind of the Lord is? Are you thoroughly convinced that this is the right way? And then do you do it? The text says that the people that thank God are the ones who do do it. Let me read it for you again in verse 6. The one person that esteems a day better than another, another person esteems all the days alike. Uh, He says, you have to be convinced. So verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord and gives thanks. The one who abstains from that food does it in honor to the Lord and gives thanks. The whole idea of honoring the Lord is because they're being faithful to what they believe God has called them to do. And they have stuck with it. They've stayed with it. They've stayed on the tracks that uh, that they want to lead for the paths of righteousness. You know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He, He takes care of me. He restores my soul. He takes me by the still waters. He lets me sleep on the green grass. But he just doesn't leave us there. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. You see, this is the cool thing is that when the Lord has given you convincing in your noose that you're going to, that this is the right thing for you to be doing to honor him, then you do it as unto the Lord. And once you get that, it's, it's really, really quite exciting. Now, since we're fully convinced in our minds and we follow through on it, then we don't have to fall trip prey to the attack in verse 28 of chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Romans chapter 1. This is something that the people that would have gotten to chapter 14 would already know. So I'm sure you already know as well. But let me go ahead and mention it to you. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Okay, this is chapter 1, verse 28. Since some people didn't see fit to acknowledge God in their ways. In other words, they came up with their dialogos, in other words, their own opinions, they came up with their own opinions without acknowledging God, God would give them up to a debased mind. The word mind there is the same noose. It is the same thought thing. It's their subconscious. It's their personality. In other words, when people do not commune with God, when they are not honoring God, when they're dishonoring God and they're doing what's right in their own eyes, the Bible says here in verse 28 that God gives them over to this debased mind that they, they would um, to do what ought not to be done. <laughs> you see what's happening? There's a big difference between believers and non-believers. Believers have the mind of God, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and people who are not believers have a debased mind. They do what's right in their own eyes. They they think of themselves as God. They get to decide. They always have man being big and God being small. And in this group, the people that do what they ought, uh, they they do what they, they shouldn't be doing, verse 29, they would be filled with the manner of unrighteousness. Remember, we're supposed to be led in the path of righteousness, but verse 29 says these people 
are finding new paths, shortcuts. They're on the paths of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I'm sure you want to have Thanksgiving with those people. You see what's going on? You can see that the, the, the God gives us this, this, this mind, and then we follow it. That's what we are honoring God with what he's given us. And then he allows us to be thankful because we don't have to do what would seem right in our own eyes, which would do all this unrighteous behavior, things that you don't have to look very far when you're driving down the road going home today to be able to see others who are doing these unrighteous, evil, covetous, malice things. It's really scary when you realize it. For the wrath of God has been revealed against these things, and that's why those folks that are doing them are not thankful, and that's a big reason why Thanksgiving has become a holiday that's being canceled, because there's a lot of people who don't know what is right, they don't do what is right, and as a result, they don't thank God for showing them what is right, because they think they're God anyway. And they want to just thank themselves. And that's why they're modifying Thanksgiving to be a turkey day where they can honor themselves. Each of us must honor God, and God then moves us to be in a beautiful place. The last uh, explanation I want you to see is that, that Jesus is Lord. Okay, and if you have your Bibles open to the next verse there in our text, uh, you're going to find, I'll go ahead and read it for us, and that is... Uh, the key verse is that everybody is going to say that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Uh, and that is because in verse 8, for if we live and if we, uh, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. The explanation here is that, hey, we're writing to Christians, to believers. Now, how many Christians are connected to Christ? How many of them are parts of the body where Jesus is the head? Some of them are all of them. All of them. Okay, if you're a Christian, uh, let me quote a few scriptures. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Okay, when, we, when you become a Christian, Galatians 2.20, he says, I, I was crucified with Christ, but now I live. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith, which is exactly what Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. And he says, and, and, and the just shall live by faith. And Paul was saying, that's me. I live by faith. It's because we're connected to Jesus. Now, in understanding this application, he says, if you are the Lord's, then everything changes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, I've been quoting this for some folks who are looking for uh, exemptions from the vaccine. And um, one of the things I quote there is, is that if you, are, uh, if you are Christ, then what, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who is in you? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is the Lord's. Now, it's kind of interesting when you start looking at this and you realize, whoa. I'm just a steward of this thing called the body. Okay? This is very important that it be taken care of properly. And you need to make sure that you do it as the Lord would have you do it. Because whose body is it? It's his. 
And you better not damage your body or you better not misuse your body or you better not neglect your body so that you need to be able to do what the Lord, the kurios, has said because we are the Lord's. If you get that explanation, it changes uh, some of the application. And that's why I want to move quickly to the third point, which is uh, the applications for believers to give thanks. So we've already seen that the people who give thanks are the ones who have their mind uh, in tune with the Lord. They also have their practices to be consistent with what they know from God. That they do what, they, what God has shown them to do. And because they do that, they give thanks to God, they give thanks to God, they give thanks to God. Now, the principles that we were looking at it, or the, uh, the, excuse me, the, the explanations or the reasons why they do it, uh, you can see it clearly in the text, uh, is that, and that's why I was trying to explain it to you, that you can grasp why they do it, because their mind has been, has been affected, they know the truth, they don't have that debased, debased mind of chapter 1. And then he says that when, you, when you're wrestling through these things together, uh, uh, you, you follow through. And then I, I said the third point there had to do with, boy, I'm getting all caught up in, in, in the particular text here. Uh, let me read it for you. In chapter 3, or in chapter 14, each must act in faith, and we must be able to get this down. Uh, and, and then by doing so, uh, I'll just read the text for us, and it'll bring it right back. Um, in chapter 14... Not all caught up with that point. So in chapter 14, he says, uh, verse 6, the one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord, so they practice what they preach. The one who eats honors the Lord, they practice what they preach, and they end up giving thanks to God. Now in verse 7, for none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That was the, t the point I was trying to drive home. We are the Lord's. Now, the application is what do we do? So what? Okay, we're the Lord's. Okay, we know the mind of God. The apostle is saying, if you're going to have peace with each other, you understand those principles first. And then he says the application comes, and you can see that in verse 10. He says, so why do you pass judgment? Why do you despise your brother? Now, it's kind of interesting if you look at the Greek word for both of those. What does it mean to pass judgment or to despise? I was looking at that and, and seeing the explanation. The first one is more generic. He says, why do you judge them? Okay, it's the same word as the quarrels at the beginning. Why do you engage with this, this trying to make sure you show how different we are? He said, do you understand why you're doing that? And then secondly, he goes to another term, uh, which, is, which is, why do you despise? Now, that idea of despising is actually cutting off or pushing people away. It's, it's sitting in the position of condemnation rather than just questioning. How many of you like to be condemned? When I watched Kyle Rittenhouse this week, when he stood there and the jury was about ready to say, you're going to jail for life or you're going to walk free. Did you see his reaction when it was a unanimous verdict that said, you're free? Wow. That 17-year-old boy, I guess he's 18 now, the, the, the burden of the world was off his shoulders, at least for a day. But you could just, he started to shake and quiver, the, te the tears, all the emotions and everything else. He didn't want to be condemned. You see, and that's this, the final point here is the application is about condemnation. 
Who's supposed to do the condemning? God is supposed to do the condemning. And that's what I want to read this text, and we'll finish with that. He says, uh, if you look at verse 10, he, he says, why do you try to do it? And the question is not on about the judging or the despising. It is about why you are trying to think of yourself as God. Why are you setting yourself up in God's position? You're not the ones. And then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, he says um, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's interesting how the apostle says it so neatly. He says, so you think that you're important that you can decide who's right and who's wrong, who should be up and who should be down? He says, don't you know that we're all going to stand before the Lord? And, and, and that includes you. That includes the person you're judging. It's really kind of interesting when you realize that he says, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah, as I say, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess or agree with God about themselves. And so each one of us is going to stand there on that judgment day. Each one of us is going to be Kyle Rittenhouse. Each one of us is going to stand before the judge. Now, we may have a friendly judge, or Kyle, did he have a friendly judge or a non-friendly judge? Oh, oh, we can all quarrel about that. Oh, that judge, he was white, or he was this, or he was that. Oh, he's from Wisconsin. Oh, he's in a conservative district. Oh, you can have all these judgment about the judges. Oh, but then about the jury. Oh, the jury, they, had, they were picked from a lottery. There was a whole bunch of them, and only the ones that got picked, they were the ones that made the decision. There's a lot of people that won't even cast judgment about the people casting judgment. Do you see how this spiral is like flushing somebody down the toilet? It just gets worse and worse and worse till they're, till they're destroyed. In this particular text, you find that God is the one who is fully capable of judging. God is going to be able to determine whether this person that wants to celebrate birthdays and this person who doesn't care about birthdays, God will resolve it. The person who has that diet that stays away from carbs and the person that just loves chocolate, eats it morning, noon, and night. God is going to be the judge. Now, some of us can look at it with wisdom and say, well, the person that eats chocolate all the time, they're probably going to have a sweet tooth only for a little while before it decays and falls out. You know, we can see the complications that if you only eat sugar, it's going to have bad effects on your body. But God is going to be the judge. So why do you have to be the one who replaces God? Is God on vacation? Did God send you a letter? Did he authorize you? Did he ordain you? At baptism, you were baptized to be the judge of everybody else, right? No, when you came up from the waters of baptism or when the water was sprinkled on you, it didn't make you somebody that could judge everybody else. Now, there are some other scriptures that I want to be able to explain before we're all said and done. But the text here is about believers interacting with believers. Now, what does this force us to do? Well, you're going to get up right now and you're going to start judging. Pastor, you went too long. It's almost noon. Or you went to Medellin, Pastor. Or down south, they used to say, Preacher, you've gone to Medellin. You know, you're messing with my space. Leave me alone. Okay, you, you're supposed to talk about that nice stuff. Well, in some ways, I'm being nice. I'm telling you to get along. Okay? But the issue that I'm actually telling you is that the way you get along is not by just sticking your head in the sand. It is not by pretending that everything is okay when it's not. 
You know what that'll feel like when you get together with all your family or your loved ones at Thanksgiving. Is it real? Or is it just talking about the, 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 the Bears or the, the Dallas or whatever other team that you root for? Is it talking about the latest recipe and how you got this or that or how, how you do this and that to keep up? Or, or the newer ones, what Netflix series are you in and what season are you on? Growing up, we didn't have that issue, couldn't add that. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is, is that when you're, when you're in the new position now, you are not God. You are not God. That is a beautiful statement. That is something you want to embrace with both hands. Deliver yourself from being, having to be God. It's freeing. You don't have to send people to hell. You may want to. Only God is righteous. Only God is in the position of judging. Only God is going to have every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is the judge, that he is the right one. Everybody is going to join the Apostle Paul with that benediction at the end and say, he's got a great salvation. Only some of them are not going to experience it. They're going to understand the wrath of God that's being poured out on all unrighteousness, on theirs. Now, when you realize this application at the end is, number one, God is going to be the judge. Remember, who is the kurios? That's the, who is the Lord? It is Jesus. Okay? And, it, and the way that the apostle was explaining it earlier, he said, if we are the Lord's, then he is the one that's got the right to be able to judge his servants, whether they've done good or bad, whether they're going to stand or whether they're going to be put down, whether they're going to have to go back for more training or whatever it is. It is the Lord who is going to make that determination. And that's why he asked that wonderful question, why do you keep trying to replace the Lord? Why do you keep sneaking into those areas that you don't have to sneak into? And why do you actually want to get up on that, on that seat of the judge? I got to stop by and see my daughter in law school. And Joshua and, and Christian were with me. And uh, they gave us a tour of the law school down there at Liberty. Really cool. And so uh, they had the door, it was like 8.30 a couple nights ago and, uh, in the evening. So we go in there, and they have this Supreme Court mock-up. They have all the nine chairs sitting up there. Praise the Lord, there's only nine, and it's not up to 14 or 21 or whatever they're going to do. Uh, but there's only nine chairs sitting there. And you know what I had that desire to do when I walked into that room and I saw this big room that looked like the Supreme Court? I wanted to go sit on one of those chairs. And I had this thought, well, I don't really want to sit in the middle because that would look like I'm arrogant. Do you hear the humor in that? But isn't that all of us? We want to sit in the seat of judgment. We want to be right and we want to be able to tell everybody else they're wrong. Is that what God called you to do? Let me see if you can remember the mission of New Covenant Church. To communicate the... The gospel by word and by deed and with passion uh, to ourselves and to our neighbors and to the world so that the wonders of God's grace in Christ might be known. We are not called to condemn everybody. The scripture already tells us that they're already condemned. You don't have to jump on the bandwagon and throw stones to make it worse. Scripture says in John 3, 17, you already know John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then he says in verse 17 and 18, he says, but, there is, but they're already condemned. We don't have to make it worse. We can't even make it better. They are under the wrath of God until God 
takes care of that wrath. And how do we, and this is where the sermon finishes, how does God take care of this wrath? There's going to be a day when all of us stand before that judgment seat. We're going to stand before the kurios, before the Lord. Now, those of you that are in Christ, you are the Lord's already. If you're in the Lord, then when you're standing before, your, your, before the Lord Jesus, he's going to say, come on in. You're already in. But if you're outside the body of Christ, it's not a pretty place to be, to stand before the Lord, to have to confess that you aren't God and that your agenda and your alternatives and your techniques and all of these things that you've done in the time that you've been given are all to be judged and condemned and found lacking. The wages of your sin is justification to send you to hell. Because you have sinned. So the whole point here is, when we are in this place, salvation is so awesome because Jesus said, I'll take it for you. There is no condemnation if you are in Christ. The cross is always up here whenever you come to church. Every message, I, I like to conclude by taking you to the foot of the cross and realize that greater love could not have been shown, that God didn't stand on the cross. Jesus didn't get up there and say, Father, give it to him right now! No. It's hard enough for him to breathe, to be able to get that one breath. Tell us, die. Paid in full. I finished it. I love you that much. When you realize that Jesus paid it all, then you don't have to, to replace Jesus. He's the one that every knee is going to bow. He is the one that every tongue is going to confess to. And he is the one that is going to determine between the sheep and the goats. And I don't want you to have to practice pretending to be Jesus when only, the only thing that that will do is get you his ire against you. Because if the Lord loves you, he will correct you when you get off the path of righteousness. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, there are a lot of things going through our minds this Thanksgiving. But I do pray that as we gather with the saints, that we would realize how frivolous and how foolish some of these debates and opinions are. Lord, I pray that you might help us to see through them. Help us to be able to see whether we have the same Lord or whether we don't. Lord, that is awesome to be able to discern what kind of a fruit tree this person is. Yes, we're all fruity if we're following Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and tenderness. Lord, I pray that there would be a lot of fruit trees that we observe, especially around our tables at Thanksgiving. But Lord, there may be some, and there may be many, that don't have those kind of fruits. They are still leaning on their own understanding. They're still doing what's right in their own eyes. They're still pushing their opinions and they're still willing to assume the role of judge because they don't know you. And they think that the only way to get their agenda is for them to declare what's good and what's bad. They can do what's right in their own eyes. Oh Lord, I pray that as we have these collisions coming in the near future, as we celebrate this special day of Thanksgiving in our country, I pray that there might be a movement of the Spirit to cause people to realize to whom do we give thanks to whom are we to show our appreciation? Oh, Lord, I pray that this would be a great time of thanksgiving, that each one of us has been convinced thoroughly that we're doing what you have bid us to do, that we're trying our best to follow that path of righteousness. And, Lord, that's why we can thank you. What a great salvation you provided. 
Lord, I thank you that the only one that's going to judge us, whether we go to heaven or hell, has already made that judgment clear. To them that are in Christ, there is no condemnation. So, Lord, I pray that as we move forward, that the, the works of our hands, the deeds of the flesh, even the, the words from our lips, our passions, uh, the way we communicate the gospel, I pray that it may cause people to see what Jesus is doing in us. And may they join in giving thanks too, that God, you haven't finished the work in us. In Jesus' name I give thanks. Amen.